We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Do Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Support for this podcast comes from U.S. Bank. U.S. Bank wants to know how you reward yourself. Because they have cards that make every day more rewarding. Are you a points order? Cashback guru? Low intro APR lover? With US Bank, it's up to you because they have the cards to fit your lifestyle. So earn more whether you're shopping at a gas station or grocery store, even while planning a staycation. Learn more at usbank.com slash credit card. US Bank credit cards are issued by US Bank National Association ND. Some restrictions may apply. Member FDIC. Playoffs started, of course, on Monday and continue through Tuesday night. You're hearing this on Wednesday morning. Uh, we're recording late Tuesday night at halftime of Lakers Blazers. So uh, we won't be doing, you know, play by play updates on a game that will have happened by the time that you're listening to this. But uh, as we record, Blazers lead by one at the half. And, um, you know, if that game finishes up by the time you know, we're still recording, we'll, we'll obviously touch on that. But Alex, we'll focus more on the games that, that took place on Monday and the three games that we already have under our belt now on Tuesday. But before we get to those games, a few news items to hit on real quickly. Uh, the NBA today clarified that the NBA draft combine, which had kind of been in limbo, usually is held in mid to late May in Chicago. Uh, that will now be held remotely at various sites throughout the month of September. So still kind of getting some details on that situation, but it, it sounds like it'll be, you know, there'll be stations kind of around the country, maybe in each region where 
teams can request that certain players go and, and work out at kind of a standardized facility uh, that, that will have access, I would assume, to um, you know, a, a very select few team personnel, I would imagine, would be able to go to these interviews. Um, and a lot of it, I'm sure, will be done remotely as well. Uh, the draft lottery, though, is slated for Thursday night. So it, it, we've talked about this on our podcast a few times, Alex, but it, it feels like there's just like no hype whatsoever for this draft. And part of it is because it's it's not an overwhelmingly talented class. And I think the much bigger part is it's just kind of fallen by the wayside and the chaos of the rest of the season. Yeah, I, I agree completely. And I mean, I, I think that honestly, the, one of the main storylines of the lottery or of the draft in general this year is the fact that the Warriors could get the number one pick. Right. Or really, they're going to get a top pick no matter what and add, even if the class isn't that good, adding a top three or a top five rookie uh, to a team that will already, you know, already probably has hopes again of winning the title. And though that feeling is certainly legitimate, um, that will be a huge boost for them. Right. And I, I think, you know, one point I've made in the past, Alex, is that if last year's draft class was this year's draft class, it would be so, so much different. The opportunity for the Warriors to add John Morant or Zion Williamson or RJ Barrett, like all three of those guys, and even maybe some of the guys who went below third have more hype than some of the guys who are going to go number one this year. You know, it's, it's kind of down to Anthony Edwards, Lamella Ball, James Wiseman, uh, it seems, at least as of now, for that number one pick. And none of those guys are, are really a lock by any means. And I, I think that's that's really dictated um, the lack of hype around this draft. And, and like you said, the main storyline is that the Golden State Warriors, the most dominant team of the last decade, a team that even if they had the 30th pick in this draft, would be among the title favorites next year simply because of the players they have coming back from injury. Like that's such a huge storyline. And it, it's something that really comes around in the NBA, like once every 20 to 25 years, you know, I, I, for so long you would hear about the Spurs, you know, kind of reloading and adding Tim Duncan on the fly. I mean, this really has the potential to be that kind of move for Golden State. Um, you know, even though that the, the, the guys in contention for that number one pick are not yeah, all time college greats, you know, all time, uh, you know, lock number one overall prospects. I mean, one of those guys is probably going to turn out pretty well. And I, I think that's a, a super interesting subplot uh, as the draft approaches. The other very minor, um, well, I shouldn't say very minor, but still something that's, uh, you know, up for debate as of now, uh, minor in the grand scheme of things as we focus on the playoffs is next season. Um, the league, I, I believe a couple months ago, initially said that they had hoped to start the season in November, which obviously is not going to happen. This season's going to go into mid-October. That was probably never realistic. Michelle Roberts, NBA PA spokeswoman, uh, president said that she said anytime between January and March next season could begin. That's obviously a very wide range. I would bet on the league wanting to start in January. I would bet on the players wanting to push that back as late as possible. Right. And yeah, a March start would really kind of throw things for a loop. I mean, we've had the NBA start like during the the lockout. Uh, I think that believe they, uh, the season started on Christmas that year, right? And they played yes. 66 games and right. they were able to, you know, keep things normal for the next season. But if you have to start in March, even if the schedule is reduced, that makes it so that the NBA maybe doesn't get back to a you know normal October start for another year or two if they kind of just keep slowly creeping it back so kind of the implications of this uh depending on when it starts are, are really interesting right and one of the big issues um as far as planning next season and, and something that under normal circumstances wouldn't really be a conflict is 
the fact that the 2020 Olympics have been pushed back now to 2021, and we'll see what happens with that. It, it wouldn't be shocking to me if, if the, the Olympics are ultimately delayed again or, or maybe even canceled altogether uh, based on, you know, the scale of a production that that is. But, you know, if the Olympics are happening in the middle of the summer and your season maybe runs from, let's say, March 1st until you know early October or something like that, however the NBA does it, you know, that would really force the decision of do you have to take a break? You know, because it's obviously very beneficial for the NBA and for basketball globally for these guys to play in the Olympics and get that exposure and bring that exposure to the rest of the world. I don't know that the NBA would would be really on board with just bypassing the Olympics altogether. Um, so that's another conflict that, that they'll have to consider. But uh, obviously, that's something that that the league will will revisit, you know, or, or at least kind of turn its attention toward after these playoffs. Luckily, through only one game for most of these teams, we we don't have a ton of of hard injury news. Victor Oladipo um, did leave Tuesday's game, uh, game one against Miami, with an eye injury. Ended up going to the hospital. Like left the game briefly, came back, played a little bit more, and then never came back uh, after halftime. So we'll we'll be keeping an eye on that. But the bigger news on Tuesday morning is that Gordon Hayward is going to be out for at least the next four weeks with uh, basically the most severe ankle injury you could possibly have, I think, without breaking your ankle is the way that I read it. Um, so he's out for the rest of, of round one and assuming the Celtics advance, maybe the entirety of round two as well. Yeah, and I mean, Hayward's play throughout the year has been relatively inconsistent, but he's still averaging like 17 points a game on 50% shooting. Like he has been good for them overall and he his absence is going to... It, it takes away, you know, kind of it takes away another ball handler, someone who can take the pressure off of Kemba Walker and Jalen Brown and Marcus Smart and Jason Tatum. And like it obviously they have all those names to to do extra ball handling, but you're going to have to replace Gorgon Hayward's minutes with someone who's really not that good. I mean, the, the Celtics, for as good as their starting five is or they go like seven deep, I would say their bench isn't very strong. It's not the strong suit of their team. So. It's going to be a lot of like semi Ogilvy moving forward. Grant Williams could get some more run. I think they'll be okay overall, but it'll be interesting. I I think this has way more implications for round two. I I agree with you. Um, The Celtics were also pretty close to blowing that game at times on Monday against Philly. You know, I, I don't know that this series can just be handed to Boston. Uh, I didn't think Philly played all that well in game one. Um, and I, I think they have room to grow in the series. The question, I guess, is do you trust Philadelphia to make the adjustments that it needs to make now to take advantage of this? I don't know that I do. I mean, there were some very questionable quotes coming from Brett Brown after that game uh, when, when asked about some of the adjustments that you know a lot of basketball people on, on Twitter and a lot of writers were suggesting the, the, the Sixers make. He basically just dismissed the idea of playing Joel Embiid with four shooters around him, something that they really <laughs> couldn't do when Ben Simmons was healthy. Um, so I, I don't know if I, if I trust Philly to actually take advantage, but I mean, this certain certainly levels the playing field, at least to some degree. I, I think Simmons is more impactful for Philly than Hayward probably is for Boston, but it, it at least levels things uh, a little bit. And I think it's important to note too, that Hayward was finally starting to look a little bit more like, like Utah jazz Hayward, um, not only in the bubble where he was great during, during the seeding games, but even before that, if you look at just going all the way back to the beginning of February, uh, through the seeding games, 18 and a half points, seven rebounds, four and a half assists, 48% from the field, 40% from three. 
And I, I think that was right around the time that Jason Tatum was really starting to break out as well. So Hayward didn't get much attention, but I mean, he had emerged as arguably their second, second to third option, you know, right there with Jalen Brown during that period when Kemba Walker was missing a lot of time. Yeah. I mean, he helps them get efficient shots. He's a great shooter himself. He's a good playmaker. Um, and he's a, he's a passable defender, I would say. So yeah, I, I mean, this, this is, you know, this does have some implications for the series overall. I mean, the, the money's still on the Celtics. Like Celtics are still minus 1000 favorites to win the series. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, as far as like the gambling odds go, the confidence is still very much in Boston's favor, but that might be an overreaction to game one as well. Um, like you mentioned, some of the comments out from Brett Brown were strange. I mean, Embiid did go five for five for 11 points in the first quarter and then ended up with only 26 points. So if mm-hmm. they can find a way to keep him engaged, if they can find a way to get him, you know, like those looks constantly and make sure, you know, they have the shooters out there because they, they didn't shoot very well from three either. Um, I, there's still a chance. Like they have the talent, Philly does, to, you know, to force a game six or game seven. But the like you mentioned, the chemistry does not seem to be very high right now at all. No, doesn't seem to be a lot of confidence. Um, and I, I didn't love the the lack of aggression from Embiid down the stretch, like you said. It, it was a, a game where I think we expected without Simmons, it's like Embiid could take 35 shots and that wouldn't be ridiculous. Um, and, right. and it kind of went the opposite way in game one, which wasn't super encouraging. Let's pivot to Milwaukee and Orlando, which, I mean, we'll see what happens with, with Lakers Blazers um, on Tuesday night as we record. But I mean, Orlando blowing out Milwaukee. I mean, it was only a 12 point difference at the end, but I mean, this was a game that other than like kind of like a half run by Milwaukee, uh, where it looked like they were maybe going to finally start figuring things out. I mean, Orlando controlled this game for like a solid 46 and a half minutes. They did. Giannis, Giannis had a good game, but I mean, the Bucks never led by more than six points, which is unbelievable for the mm-hmm. game. They didn't shoot very well. I mean, I think this really came down to shooting Bucks at 43% from the field, 33% from three, only 64% from the free throw line. A lot of that was Giannis going four for nine, which is something he's had issues with in the past. Um, Meanwhile, the Magic went 49, 39, 95 as their shooting splits. Um, And, you know, this is the Bucks give up a ton of threes and they concede that if a team gets extremely hot from three, you know, that's I mean, that's what that's a way to beat the Bucks. But. 39% 39% from three from the Magic isn't, like, really world-beating. It's really good, but it shouldn't be enough to take down the Milwaukee Bucks. Exactly, and and that's what that's what I, I said to some friends this afternoon, is what was so concerning about this game is when you look at some of the losses that Milwaukee has taken over these last couple of years since they've kind of become this version of the Bucks, especially the losses that they've taken to inferior opponents. You know, it's one thing to lose to the Clippers or the Lakers or the Celtics, but when they lose to a team like Orlando, it's usually because somebody goes off or the team hits like 24 of 52 from three. That was not the case at all. And, you know, 39% from three is really good, but it wasn't, it wasn't ideal. And a lot of those threes came at the end. Um, Evan Fournier hit three in a row over the course of five or six possessions late in that game. So for the most part, I mean, the shooting was relatively even from beyond the arc for a lot of the game. I think what's more concerning is that Orlando shot better than 60% from two point range. You know, I mean, I, I think it's it, it, the way that we talked about Milwaukee potentially getting beat in the playoffs is teams doing what I just said, hitting a bunch of threes. You know, the Bucks are, are not really selling out to defend that. But 
what they are selling out to defend is the rim. And they did a horrible job of that today. And, you know, Brooke Lopez, I thought had maybe one of his worst, probably bottom five games of the season on both ends, completely ineffective. Chris Middleton, mostly invisible in 31 minutes, only had 14 points. But, you know, I, you and I talked off air before we started recording. And I think the main issue for the Bucks right now is their depth pieces that played so well during the regular season have not followed them to Orlando whatsoever. No. And I mean, you know, the magic only shoot 34% from three on the season. That's 25th in the league. So you would think that, you know, if you, I don't know, you should be able to just stop them driving inside. And like you mentioned, low, I mean, Lopez had a terrible game, uh, which is surprising because he had been one of the best box players in the bubble. Like he, he was scoring 20 points once in a while. Like he was looking awesome. And they like the Bucks bench has been good, but they can't do enough if Middleton, Bledsoe, and Lopez aren't carrying their own weight. Two of those guys need to play pretty well, and really only Bledsoe, I think, had a decent game. Um, Middleton didn't play well at all, um, and it's just like the the Bucks bench is good again, but Divincenzo, Connaughton. Um, that's just, those guys are not going to consistently save you from, from this kind of a performance. Right. I, I think Middleton and Lopez are the two that, that really needed to step up and are, are probably most responsible for lack of a better term, uh, for this disastrous start to the series. I, I thought Bledsoe was fine. I mean, one of five from three, that's basically what you come to expect from Eric Bledsoe in the playoffs, but he, he drove the ball. Well, I, I thought he was, um, you know, fine, especially considering how much time he'd missed uh, earlier in the bubble. But I mean, I, I Dante DiVincenzo and, and Pat Connaughton, I thought were the two guys who really doomed them off the bench. And, you know, you look at the on off, they were, they were both, I think, minus two or minus three. So it, it wasn't catastrophic in that regard. But I mean, DiVincenzo, one of six from the field, oh of two from three. Connaughton, one of four from the field, one of four from three. Um, just sloppy play all around from both of those guys. And you know, I, I had said to you, I, I think, I don't know how long ago it was now, but um, part of the reason that the Bucks, I think, were able to weather the loss of Malcolm Brogdon as well as they did was that Dante DiVincenzo made a massive leap from year one to year two. And that was true for, for the pre-shutdown part of the season, but it, he's just been a completely different guy in Orlando. Yeah, the, the DiVincenzo-George Hill combination he's, did a really good job of making up for Eric Bledsoe's absence. Mm-hmm. Um, and really like a, a good job of making up for the loss of Malcolm Brogdon, uh, during the regular season. And now you're in a situation where when those guys, you know, when, when DiVincenzo doesn't play that well, um, it's, it's tough because George Hill is not a 35 minute per game player. So he can't, he can't always save you, um, in situations like that. So, I mean, you know, I, the, the magic did the right thing. They played a zone. A lot of the game um, forced the Bucks to shoot from outside. Didn't want Youngs to get to the rim as much. Didn't want a lot of other guys to get to the rim that much because the Bucks shoot at volume, but they're not an elite three-point percentage team. Mm. So if you can control the glass, if you can stop them from getting to the rim, uh, it's a good place to start, obviously, and that succeeded. If you're playing a zone against the Milwaukee Bucks, here's what you want to happen. You want Giannis Antetokounmpo to lead the team in three-point attempts, and that's exactly what happened. <laughs> That is not yeah. good for Milwaukee. That, that no, should it, never happen. That should never, ever happen. It's not good for Milwaukee. And you can you can get away with a zone when a team isn't like an elite passing team. And as good of a passer as Giannis has been, 
he's not he's not an elite passer. He's not like a playmaker first. He's not mm-hmm. dissecting the defense and making you know all the you know like elite passes. And right. Middleton's also a good passer. You know, Bledsoe's also a good passer. But this team is starved for kind of like pure playmakers. Mm-hmm. And Bledsoe is probably the closest thing, you know, as like a guard to a zone buster that you can get because he's so quick off the dribble. But I, again, it, it's just like the, the Bucks are not. They're they're really not that set up well to um, combat a zone. So you know, Bud will have to really like <laughs> I guess teach them how to break a two three zone. The Rotowire NBA podcast is brought to you by PropSwap. The smart sports better knows where to find the best odds before placing any bet, and that is why smart sports betters use PropSwap. It's America's marketplace to buy and sell sports bets. Just last week, a customer bought a Miami Heat to win it all ticket at the odds of 42 to 1. FanDuel right now has a Miami Heat at 25 to 1 to win the NBA title. PropSwap customers always find the best odds because you're buying directly from other bettors like yourself. See a ticket you like, but you think the price is just a little bit too high? Submit a bid for a price you think is fair, then you can buy that ticket outright. It's the best way to make sure you're getting the best odds possible. No sportsbook is going to offer some of the odds that you'll find on PropSwap right now. They just simply will not. PropSwap, where America buys and sells sports bets. So you and I put an article up on the site uh, with with a number of our other NBA staff members earlier this week, uh, just predicting each series, the series winner, how many games, and then a brief write-up on how we expect that series to go. So we'll kind of use that uh, as a guide as we go from game to game here. Uh, of the six responders, respondents, responders, uh, to uh, the, the the questions of, of you know predicting each series, you were the only one to say Bucks in five. Everybody else, you know, myself, Shannon, James Anderson, Mike Barner, Alex Rickling, everybody else went Bucks in four. I, that was a no-brainer to me. Um, so one, you know, hats off to you for <laughs> for predicting this. And two, my question is, how confident are you now that the Bucks can reel off five consecutive wins or four? Uh, excuse me. Yeah, I um I think they can, but I am a I I'm a little less confident, I should say. I mean, the Magic will presumably get Aaron Gordon back soon. Not that he's like a, a game changer, but yeah, I don't his, know if that's good or bad. <laughs> uh who knows at this point. Um I think they can, you know, win four in a row, but I don't think the Magic are like going away. You know, I think they like I you know, like I mentioned in the article, they're they are really well coached. They are defensive minded and, you know, having Vucevic, they have like an all-star caliber player on their team and they just run this, you know, they run an offensive system. They're just well coached. So I, I'm relatively confident because I know the Bucks are the better team, but if there's not going to be a six game series, again, that's not that far off from my prediction. So I, I can't, I can't rule that out completely. I mean, honestly, I, I think with the way that Milwaukee was playing prior to Orlando, I I think not sweeping is almost a failure in some ways, you know, and, and maybe it would have been different if they'd come out and won the first three games and there's a letdown in game four and they finish it up in game five. But I mean, this was the alarm bells were already like kind of quietly ringing uh, after Milwaukee's eight seeding games. And this has just sent everything into a frenzy. And I mean, I, I'm with you. I, I still think the most likely outcome is Bucks and five. I think they probably win the next four. Um, and, and maybe this is the wake up call that, that they probably needed to get things going. I think there's almost no chance that Orlando wins game two. So I, I wouldn't be concerned about that, but I, I think that the bigger question is, 
to Milwaukee's inconsistencies, you know, some of the holes that we've highlighted, how do those look when you're going up against a Toronto or a Boston or a Miami? Um, you know, I mean, if, if, if Milwaukee plays this game today that they played uh, against Orlando, they play that game against Miami, they might lose by 45 points. No question. And yeah, I mean, if this is, um, if this, if this ends up being a six game series, I think people are going to jump off the the bandwagon pretty fast as far as, you know, the bucks are concerned. And I think you'll see series odds tighten up, you know, in terms of like who's favored for, you know, next round's matchup. Mm-hmm. Um, and it'll be, it'll, it, it's not going to take a lot for people to start getting really concerned if they just can't make easy work of the, of the Orlando magic. So the heat took care of the Indiana Pacers in game one on Tuesday uh, this is one that in our predictions article, we had unanimous six for six. Everybody went with Miami and everybody had the heat in either five or six games. You had the heat in six. I had the heat in five. Um, do you still feel confident that Indiana can get two games in this series? Uh, Victor Oladipo potentially being out is tough. Um, and the heat did a really good job of trying to stop uh, TJ Warren from continuing to score 30 points on everybody. I, st- I think I still feel confident in six games. Um, I, I do think Indiana's top-end talent is good, you know, between Brogdon, Oladipo, TJ Warren, Miles Turner. They got to play those guys a ton of minutes, but I, I think any of those guys can get hot and, you know, force a game six. They're good defensively. So I'm, I'm, not, I'm not ready to completely pivot off this. I'm sure you feel better about your Heat and five pick, although the game was close for a while there in the fourth quarter. Right. That's a very deceptive final score. It was close even late into the fourth. And and Jimmy Butler uh, had one of his better, you know, five minute stretches of the entire season, maybe his best five minute stretch in the heat uniform toward the end of this game where he just took over, hit a couple of threes, something he really had just kind of phased out of his game for the most part uh, prior to the restart. But I mean, 28 three rebounds, four assists, four steals, two blocks for him. Certainly got the best of, of TJ Warren in what's turned into like a weirdly bizarre, um, you know, one-on-one rivalry. But no, I, I mean, I would be confident that Indiana gets one. Uh, I mean, if, if Miami can close out like they did in game one, I, I, I feel pretty good about Heat and five. But I mean, like you said, Indiana was in this game from the start. I, they were probably the better team in the first half. And ultimately, it's going to come down to Oladipo. I mean, if he ends up with like a damaged cornea or something where it's it's really impacting his vision and maybe he has to miss games two and three, that's probably curtains for Indiana. I, I think losing Indiana or losing Oladipo and Sabonis is probably too much to overcome because, I mean, as we saw on Tuesday, like this Miami team is just incredibly, incredibly deep. And they've it's seemingly always had one or two guys injured at, at one point or another this season. And this was the first time really all year that we got to see them kind of click as an entire group. And it was a, it was a day where they didn't even shoot the three all that well. I mean, Duncan Robinson, two of eight, Tyler Harrow, one of five, Olenek, one of three, Jones, one of two. I mean, I, I think they, they didn't even play their best game and I'm sure they would feel the same way. Um, and, and one other kind of thing to monitor, at least with Miami is Goran Dragic gets to start over Kendrick Nunn for the first time all year. Kendrick Nunn did not play a minute in this game for Miami. He did not. I mean, Dragic played really well. 24 points, six rebounds, five assists, and a steal. Um, although none, none came back relatively recently from uh, he exited the bubble uh, for a little bit. So maybe it's a win thing. Maybe Spolster is just not confident enough to throw him uh, out there in, in a playoff game like this. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, if Dragic keeps playing this well and Hero keeps playing this well, it's hard to yank too many minutes away from these other guys, especially when you have Iguodala is going to play more minutes in the postseason and Jay Crowder mm. uh, as well. Um, and they, I mean, he, again, played really well. They only had nine turnovers and only one in the second half. And uh, the Pacers, the Pacers lost. I mean, they shot 42% from three and only scored 101 points, which is not a great sign. Mm-hmm. Um, so if that regresses at all, kind of back back to the mean, and especially if Oladipo's out, that's I think that's one of the indicators that this series could be more tilted toward Miami, is the the Pacers shot incredibly well from three and just still could not close this game out and could not score more than 101. So the only game so far that really was not back and forth throughout, or at least fairly close throughout, was Houston taking care of OKC on Tuesday afternoon, 123-108. I mean, this game was was basically between 10 and 20 points for, for most of the, the late first half and, and most of the second half as well. OKC just looked overmatched to me. And other than getting a really good game from Danilo Gallinari, who had 29, Chris Paul ended up getting the the patented like LeBron playoff triple double where things aren't going well and um you know you just kind of look up and all of a sudden he, he salvages a triple double in a blowout loss but okc it got almost nothing from its bench dennis Schroeder was atrocious in this game he was minus 19 in 32 minutes three of 12 from the field and, and i think the glaring thing to me is even though okc has all these wings you know long uh you know athletic wings guys like robertson basely uh abdel nader terrence ferguson who got the start today they don't have anybody to guard Harden right now. Uh, and I think until Lou Dort comes back, that's going to remain the case. And and it's also not like Lou Dort is like the perfect Harden stopper. You know, I think physically he matches up well, but at the end of the day, he's a rookie and a guy who I, I think a few months ago, you probably never would have thought would be guarding James Harden in a first round playoff series. So, I mean, of all the teams that, that I'm, you know, I, I kind of thought this series could maybe be 50, 50 and, you know, maybe 60, 40 in favor of Houston, but I mean, this was a, a a firm message sent, I guess, for the Rockets in game one. Yeah, I mean, Robertson didn't even do a good job of guarding Harden, and he's supposed to be, like, their best defender. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know he's just recently coming back from, like, two years off. But, um, yeah, they just don't have the personnel for that. SGA also had a bad game, only scored nine points, took nine shots. And Erlens Noel had four fouls in seven minutes. Like, at one point, he had four fouls in four minutes. Um, and the only, the, the Rockets only got three points from Robert Covington and they were still able to win this decisively. Um, Harden was unbelievable. Yeah. They had no answer for him. He had 37 points, 11 rebounds. The three assists is really, uh, deceiving cause he was, his passing was incredible in mm-hmm. this game, but OKC was just forcing another pass. Um, they closed out really hard on the guy Harden passed to, and then that guy would pass and get the assist. Um, so Harden's passing was incredible. And yeah, I mean, I thought, I mean, I picked Rockets in seven um, and ultimately I thought it was a good value, you know, as far as betting goes to bet on uh, the Rockets because they're, I mean, they have James Harden, they're incredible and, you know, their, their core plays really well together. PJ Tucker, um, Robert Cummington, Harden, and Eric Gordon had a good game uh, too. He had 21 points on 17 shots, was really, really aggressive, but yeah, Rockets just looked like the flat out better team they the thunder did as much as they could to, to force steven adams in the paint and knock guys around and stuff like that and he finished with 17 and 12 but that just it, it really just like you mentioned it it wasn't enough they need schroeder and they need 
SGA to have at least average games to really stand a chance here, I think. Yeah, I, I think if there's one major concern for Houston right now, it's that they may have used up their one Jeff Green game way too early. <laughs> yeah. Very bold of Jeff Green to go for 22, 6, and 4, go 8 of 12 from the field this early in the playoffs. Yeah, usually you'd probably want to save that maybe for the Western Conference Finals. So, I mean, that's something to monitor. I mean, I, I think it's fair to assume now that Jeff Green will return to being normal Jeff Green the rest of the way. I, w- I would say that's the case. Yeah, if the, maybe maybe if you're making the case for OKC wins the next game, it's that Jeff Green scores two points on Thursday. Uh, right. <laughs> they need to shut down Jeff Green. I mean, I would imagine that on Wednesday, like the strategy session is just like, how do we, what do we do with this guy? Right. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, uh, or go uh, ahead. L- last thing, I mean, Rockets. Rockets also won the turnover game, but OKC only had seven offensive rebounds, and I know they don't have a ton of big men outside of Steven Adams, but if there's one place you have to punish the Rockets, it's on the glass. And I think they only had two or three more offensive rebounds than Houston. And that just can't happen. That's another way they're going to, they'll lose the series is if they can't consistently out rebound um, the Rockets. Yeah, that's another great point. And, and kind of like we were saying with Miami, it, you know, Houston played very well, but it didn't feel like it was their best game. You know, and when you get blown out by 15 in a game that you were trailing by, more than 20 at times. I, I think ideally you'd like to look in the mirror and say, well, you know, they just beat us. They played a great game. And he and James Harden played well. Jeff Green played well. But, you know, like you said, Covington really didn't do much of anything. Daniel House wasn't overly effective. Green or Eric Gordon was fine, but two of six from three. So, you know, it, it feels like OKC has some catching up to do and, and Houston maybe still has another level uh, to go up. Let's go back to Monday's games. Uh, we'll start with the first one, Toronto and Brooklyn. This is another game that the final score is not really indicative of how things went. I mean, Toronto came out. It looked incredibly, uh, incredibly stout on both ends. I think they were up like 20 to four in that game, ended up closing really strongly as well. But Brooklyn made a a, a pretty, uh, a pretty strong, excuse me, strong run at the end of the first or at the end of the second quarter, continuing into the third quarter. And this was a game that at least for a few minutes looked like um, was maybe going to be a redux of, of Toronto blowing that game to those very same Orlando Magic last year. But, I mean, Fred Van Vliet, man, I, I never in a million years did I think that that Fred Van Vliet, after playing at Wichita State, would come into the NBA and be just casually throwing up eight three-pointers in, in an NBA playoff game. Yeah, he, he threw up 10 three-pointers. He made eight of them. Like, right. and 11 assists as well, the only one turnover um, had filled out the entire stat sheet had a stat in every category, played 39 minutes. Not sure they needed him to play 39 minutes, but he did. Um, and yeah, I mean, Toronto was up 68 to 35 with less than five minutes left in the first half. And then Brooklyn got back in. They, they sealed it again. So yeah, this is a series. This is a series that I, I predicted in a sweep. And this makes me feel even more confident than the, uh, in that, um, you know, despite Timothy Luau Cabarro going for 26. I don't think, uh, <laughs> I don't think he can, I listen at times he carried this team in the bubble. Uh, I know Karis LeVert got all the hype, uh, but he, I don't think TLC is going to be able to do enough to, to pull this one out. He deserves some love, man. He was the, I believe the only net with a positive net rating in this game. <laughs> am I, am I wrong? I think he was, he was a plus know. two in 33 minutes. And, you know, we have to give the, uh, the cursory, of course, this, you know, one game plus minus doesn't matter. But look, it's starting to become a pattern with this guy. 
It is. Um, I, I use the one of their most dangerous offensive players, and it's not that's not really even an exaggeration. No, I well, I also think that the Nets deserve some commendation for being as as like frisky and competitive as they have, right? I mean, yeah, oh yeah. Like Lavert has has been great, um, although he wasn't wasn't fantastic in this game. Did have a career high fifteen assists, but just five of fourteen from the field. Garrett Temple was awful in this game. One of ten from three. Some very ill-advised attempts, uh, in my humble opinion. Uh, Joe Harris was fine, but like outside of uh, those core three or four guys, you can throw Jared Allen in there as well. I mean, this is we're we're bordering on like 2016 76ers roster territory with what they're throwing out there. I Luau Cabarro was on that roster, I think. I think he, I believe he was. You're right. I, Justin Anderson, I think, also spent some yeah. time there as well. Would not be surprised if Chris Chioza made a few starts. <laughs> Seems like he would have been there. I mean, the, the Nets have somebody named Dante Hall, and he's not even the real Dante Hall from the NFL. Like that. That's how far they're dipping in. I mean, there these. There's really no other team where guys are getting like 15 minutes of run in a playoff game, and you and I would be like, I don't really know what he looks like. And that's how right. I felt watching like Jeremiah Martin. Never, right. I had no idea who that guy was. Yeah, uh, yeah. There's, I, I don't really think there's much to to say about this series. No, I feel great about Raptors in four. You do as well. Yes. All right, Utah Denver. This was a super fun game mm-hmm. uh, on Monday. Uh, I, I think probably the best back and forth game we've had so far went into overtime. An incredible performance from Donovan Mitchell. Uh, I had Nuggets in five in this series. You also have Nuggets in five. I, I, I don't. I wouldn't say I feel like better about that after this game. I, I mean, I, obviously the Nuggets getting the win is is one step closer to that prediction coming true. But I mean, I, I felt like this was really Utah's game to win in regulation and. As soon as it went to overtime, you know, Denver came out, kind of blitzed the Jazz right away, and it, it fell apart pretty quickly. Right. I mean, there are some interesting numbers here. Like, Denver shot unsustainably well. They shot 52% from the field, 54% from three. They're not going to keep doing that. Um, they had four fewer turnovers than the Jazz, which is great. Uh, but the Jazz had eight more offensive rebounds, which is ultimately how they stayed in this game, in addition to Donovan Mitchell's obviously insane 57 points. Um, but yeah, I mean, I picked, I, I picked the Nuggets five because I just think Jokic can stretch the floor. He can pull Rudy Gobert out, makes his rim protection less effective. And, uh, I, the loss of Bogdanovich really hurts them because their closest substitute for that is Jordan Clarkson. And if you're giving Jordan Clarkson 17 shots a game, not generally a good idea for a playoff series. Um, and I, I just think Denver right now is is the more talented team. Um, Mike Conley's out as well, probably I think out for game two. So overall, I just I just have more trust in Denver as these two teams are are currently constructed. I'm gonna need to see some more evidence, frankly, uh, before I I completely rule out Jordan Clarkson as being a positive player in a playoff series. He he had some insane shots early in that game, a couple end of shot clock uh, heaves. Uh, that that resulted in buckets, but he was not great in the second half. And I mean, Utah's entire offense in the second half was just Donovan Mitchell attacking. And luckily he had, I would say pretty safely his best offensive game ever in the NBA. I mean, 19 of 33 from the field, hit six threes, 13 of 13 at the line, still had seven assists, did have five turnovers, but in a game where you're doing everything yourself, that's, that's pretty excusable. I'm with you in that as long as they're without Mike Conley, they're going to have a really difficult time, I think, scoring uh, against this Denver defense, which, 
I know they put up 125 um, and they had 115 in regulation, but like we said, that came on like the best game Donovan Mitchell has ever played. And, and Denver's defense has been terrible. They're the worst defense in the bubble. But at some point, you just have to look who's on the floor. And are you really worried about Royce O'Neal? Are you really worried about Jawan Morgan? Those guys were a combined two of 11 from the field. Tony Bradley, awful as a backup to Rudy Gobert in this game. Emmanuel Moutier still doesn't really look right. He, he only played 10 minutes. I mean, without Mike Conley, they just, their guard, their guard depth is so, so poor. And if Jordan Clarkson isn't having his one out of every 10 games where he goes off for 25, it just puts way too much on Donovan Mitchell. And I think in a, in a series where you're playing every other day, you know, over the course of a week and a half, um, that's just a lot to ask. But it, there, it does sound like Conley's going to have a good chance to come back for game three, which is incredibly positive for Utah. But you do have to wonder, you know, these quarantine periods are no joke. Like you're, you're chilling in your hotel room. You're not practicing. You're not working out. Like, what is he going to look like? when he comes back. I, I think that's a question you have to ask. It is. Yeah. And you're right in that Denver's defense is terrible, uh, but they don't need it to be great for this series. And, and then if you're just talking about who can outgun who Denver has so many offensive weapons at this point, they just have a wealth between Jokic, Jamal Murray, who went for 36, Michael Porter Jr. Um, you know, Jeremy Grant has been playing extremely well in the bubble. Paul Millsap didn't even play that well. So, yeah, I, I, I'm still, I'm still holding strong on my, on my Nuggets in five prediction ultimately. Yeah, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it goes six, but uh, very satisfied um, with with Nuggets in five right now. I still don't totally trust Denver, but I, I, it was good to see Jamal Murray go off the way that he did uh, at the end of the fourth quarter and even into overtime. I mean, this was a game where uh, they were carried by Jokic for for much of the night. Got some big baskets early from Michael Porter, but he kind of faded as the game went on and the guy who was going bucket for bucket with Donovan Mitchell at the end was Jamal Murray. And even though Mitchell was the guy with the, the higher gaudier point total, it was kind of Murray who got the last laugh. And this is the first time I think in, in a really meaningful setting like this, where we've seen Jamal Murray, you know, maybe signal that he's, he's kind of taking that leap, not toward being a, a perennial all-star type of player like Donovan Mitchell. But, you know, we've talked about him as somebody who for the last two and a half, three years has kind of been the same guy year after year. And that's a, a very good, but not great point guard. This was a, a great, legitimately great game from Jamal Murray. It was, I mean, this is the kind of player, you know, you hope that he can ultimately turn into, which is a legitimate second option. Um, right. And, you know, over the past couple of years, people have been wondering, oh, is this the year he's going to take the leap? And he just keeps making small incremental improvements. But I think if he can continue to I mean, if he breaks out like in the playoffs, I mean, that that will be I mean, that just adds another dynamic for the for the Nuggets, because maybe he can turn from a 17 point per game score to a closer to 25 point per game score. And with all the like I mentioned, other offensive options they have, they could end up being, you know, like scoring 125 basically every night against almost anybody. So I think I need to eat crow a little bit on my Michael Porter Jr. assessments throughout the season. I I mean, I've always been a fan of his. I, I kind of thought he was a little bit overrated in terms of the way people talked about him as an asset. I thought the injury risk was was huge. I thought he needed to gain more weight, uh, become stronger before he would become you know, a really effective NBA player. Totally wrong about all that. He is <laughs> he is the real deal, man. And I, I still I still would consider trading him for the right package just because I think with Jokic and Murray and when healthy, you know, Harris, Millsap, Grant, Barton like that, that core is still really good. And if you could get like a Brad Beal, I think that'd be huge. And that's just a safer option to me. But man, I mean, he is, like, 
it wouldn't be that insane if in two years he's as good or, or like slightly better even because of the size than than like a Jason Tatum, right? Uh, offensively. Yeah. Yeah. Defensively, I, I, maybe not. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah, I think I think, you know, there's a chance he could. I mean, if if he can keep doing this, he could end up being basically a two A, two B option with Jamal Murray offensively. And if not better than Jamal Murray offensively, uh, like you mentioned, I mean, in the bubble, 21 points on 53, 42, 93 shooting. That's in addition to 8.5 uh, rebounds. He's been okay on defense, at least numbers wise. But yeah, I mean, he's he is really good. I The injury thing is still a legitimate concern. And you don't want him gaining too much weight if he has like back problems. Right. But and so I think you're right to point out if the right package comes along, maybe you trade him. But I mean, the amount of like trading Michael Porter Jr., that's a decision that I don't think any GM would ever want to make. Uh, the The amount of pushback or the amount of like it could come back to haunt you. I think I think they would almost rather just keep him and risk that. Mm-hmm you know, that possibility of an injury rather than trade him away. No, that's a good point. You never want to be, you know, the GM who, who ends up trading somebody like that with that kind right. of potential. Um, but I, uh, correct me if I wrong. Doesn't he, isn't he also like genetically predisposed to injuries? Allegedly. Like I, he has a brother who has like multiple torn ACLs. He has a sister oh, yeah. who's torn her ACL like five times, something insane like that. Um, that would concern me a little bit, but still, I guess family history, probably not enough to warrant a trade. Um, but anyway, I mean, he's been he's been awesome, and I I was I think wrong about his his potential readiness for the playoffs. Um, let's go to Dallas and the Clippers. Uh, this was the late game on Monday night. Another really really fun game. And at, did you stay up to watch this one? Uh, I did not. Okay, well, I, I mean, I'm sure you saw some I saw of the, the pushback from from Porzingis uh, getting kicked out of that game. I mean, two incredibly weak technicals on Porzingis. Um, the second one I, I did kind of understand just because anytime there's anyone shoving anyone, you're usually going to get double text. That's just kind of the, you know, the default response from any referee. And I, I do think to the referee's credit, it's, they're not necessarily thinking in the moment, Oh, that guy has one tech. We can't give him another one. You know, I think if they see a little bit of a fracas and two guys are pushing each other, they're just going to sign the double text. They're not going to think about that. But I, the, the first, the first tech on Porzingis was, inexcusably bad um just just kind of the, the typical reaction to a call they disagreed with and a call where he you know had a clean block on a, on a fast break and it was not the first time that, that that had happened that night and I mean this was a game where Dallas was I wouldn't say in control but definitely right there and at times in control uh against a much better opponent and and as soon as Porzingis was kicked out of that game you not only felt like Dallas had no chance but it just felt like the whole the wind was just sucked out of the arena, which is tough to do when there's no fans in there. Um, but you could just tell it was just like a, a whole, like an entirely like, come on, man situation, like for both sides, almost like even doc rivers was like, yeah, I didn't want to see him get kicked out of that game. And and from then on, it was just kind of a slow bleed out from Dallas. But I mean, Luka Doncic, I, I think probably exceeded expectations by a good margin in his first career playoff game. Yeah. Being able to score 42 points against, the Clippers is just, yeah. I mean, in your first playoff game as like a 21 year old is just, I mean, obviously that's incredible. Um, nine assists, seven rebounds also. Yeah. I mean the, you know, the concern is, was always like, I mean, I, I, I picked Clippers to win in five. Cause I figured Mavericks have the best offense in the history of basketball. If I, I don't know how they don't win a game. Um, yeah. 
but they do need Porzingis for that. And so without him available, you're relying a lot on like Boban and Maxi Kleber, which is not enough. And um, you're kind of just hoping Tim Hardaway Jr. pops for like 35. Uh, and just all like they kind of just got beat in the way. I don't know if you expect them to get beat, but the Mavs have had turnover problems and they had 10 more turnovers than the Clippers. Um, Cause the Mavericks also, the Mavericks main problem on defense is they force, I think the fewest turnovers in the league and uh, Clippers also had six more offensive rebounds. And some of that may have been, you know, Porzingis's absence, but if they, if they continue to lose the turnover and offensive rebound battle, it doesn't matter how good their offense is. If they just consistently are getting fewer and fewer possessions than the other team who is, you know, uh, one of the favorites to win the title. The Clippers had as many turnovers as Luka Doncic had individually. That says a lot. And I'll, I, mean, I think like eight of those came in the first half for Doncic. So he did clean it up in the second half. Um, he was fantastic. I mean, there were just a couple moments where it felt like the game was in a balance. And I was talking to, to James Anderson about this this morning. He pointed out there's a possession late where it was, I think it was like a four or six point game. And, you know, Dallas was, was getting buckets. Like Luka was getting to the rim whenever he wanted. And there were a couple possessions in a row where Tim Hardaway uh, just went, you know, full Deion Waiters mode and took things into his own hands. That did not end well. And then there was one late where uh, Seth Curry, you know, who's a great shooter, went four of eight from three in this game, took a a pretty ill-advised transition three. Um, you know, not just one of those, like, that's not the shot you want situations. And and you can see the frustration on Luca's face uh, after that one. But, I mean, like we said last week, Alex, it just feels like Dallas is, is a piece or two short, even with Porzingis playing a full complement of minutes. Too many minutes for guys like Michael Kidd Gilchrist. You know, you, you as as fun as Boban is, you don't necessarily want to rely on on Boban for 13 minutes in a playoff game against the Clippers. Uh, Trey Burke playing big minutes for this team. He he wasn't great on the offensive end. Um, I mean, they're I think we talked about them as like a potential Buddy Heald destination. They feel like they just need to load up around Luca and, and kind of build that that same team structure that we've seen built in Milwaukee around Giannis and around LeBron really his whole career. Yeah, I, I agree. They, they definitely need some better defenders um, at the very least and some more, I guess some more three and D guys, you know, honestly. And I, I mean, you know, I, I don't want to act like this was a complete, you know, meltdown or failure by the Mavericks. Cause they, first of all, they only lost by eight. And at one point they were up by 14 and the Clippers biggest lead was 16. So both teams did a pretty good job of, of getting out ahead and going on runs. Um, so I, Again, I still think there's a chance the the Mavericks win one or, or two games here, but I, I just think the Clippers defense is going to break them down over this series. And I don't think I don't think, you know, the Mavericks have the personnel available to just stop. I mean, the, the, the Clippers, you know, the amount of options they have offensively is just overwhelming. Right. And and part of the reason I think that Dallas was able to hang around in this game, one, they were hitting a ton of threes early on. That cooled off as the game went on. Yes. Uh, but I think that I think that gave them a lot of confidence early on and, and kind of buoyed them throughout the game. But I mean, the, the Clippers bench was not good in this game whatsoever. Montrez Harrell didn't really look like himself. Uh, and, and, you know, he was away from the team for like a solid month. So it's about what you'd expect. Reggie Jackson went full Reggie Jackson in this game was <laughs> borderline unplayable. I mean, he was 0-5 from the field, gave them nothing. Lou Williams was not good. Um, you know, Landry Shamit only played eight minutes. Have to wonder how healthy he was. So, you know, this was one game where, you know, you said you still feel confident about Dallas, you know, getting a game at some point. I would I would say the same. I have Dallas in five as well. But this did have like vague uh, 2018 finals game one 
vibes where it really felt like they had a, a good chance to steal game one against a vastly superior opponent. And the way things played out and the way that they unraveled, you know, with the questionable calls on Porzingis, it, it's just it felt like the Mavericks knew that this was their opportunity. And I, I think it might be hard for them to channel that same energy going forward in this series. Yeah, I agree. All right. So I want to look at uh, some of the odds quickly for Wednesday's games. We have another four game slate. Uh, Nets Raptors, Jazz Nuggets, Sixers Celtics and Mavs Clippers. Raptors are 11 point favorites. Technically a home game for Toronto. Not that it matters. I think they win by considerably more than 11. I, I, I think they they probably put their their foot to the gas and and prevent the the type of big swing, the big run from Brooklyn that we saw on Monday. Yeah, why not? I like I any you know anytime a game is is double digit point spread, I think you you definitely have to consider the other side just because that's a pretty big point spread for two, right. you know, like professional basketball teams. But yeah, I mean they. It, your your best bet is like a backdoor cover in the fourth quarter, you know. Uh, so I I just wouldn't have comp. I wouldn't bet this game first of all because of that. But yeah, I think I think if I had to, I would. You know, Raptors minus eleven is not that intim- intimidating of a line. So how about Jazz Nuggets? Denver favored by three and a half. I I think that feels about right. Yeah, without Mike Conley, I think that's right. Like normally, and I think there's an argument to take the Jazz if you really buy into the idea that the Nuggets shot unsustainably well, like they were too hot from three and that the Jazz might feel like their backs are against the wall a little bit. So I could understand taking Jazz plus three and a half. Um, but again, I, I would, I would, you know, I still think it's Nuggets and five. So it's, it's hard for me to push to uh, push back against minus three and a half too hard. Sixers, Celtics, Boston, minus five, no Gordon Hayward. Uh, what are your thoughts on that line? I think if you want to bet on the Sixers, this is the game, right? Yeah. Like I'm no, yeah, no Gordon Hayward. Embiid had that first half that Brett Brown could point to, you know, to both Embiid and the rest of the team and be like, we need this, we need this to happen, or the first quarter, I should say, we need this to happen for the whole game. So, right. I think I, I think I would take Philly to to cover or win here. It's plus one fifty five on the money line. I think I think this is your spot if you have any belief in the in the 76ers um, to to cover or get a win. Yeah, I'm with you. I mean, I, I think you I, I think if anything, they, they look at how they played in game one and I, I'm sure they feel like they didn't play their best game. They were right in it until, you know, the last 30 to 40 seconds of that game. It was still winnable. And and then you look at the box score, like you said, and, and Bede, you know only takes 15 shots, doesn't have his best game They're without Gordon Hayward. You know, if, if this team has any fight or any belief in Brett Brown as the coach, this is the game that you you make the adjustments, you come out and win it. Um, but going back to what I said earlier, it's just, do we trust this coaching staff, which has had major question marks for the last couple of years, uh, to make the right adjustments? And I, I think personnel-wise, the Sixers now match up a little bit better. And, and you made a great point early on, too, that losing Gordon Hayward maybe isn't the bigger deal because of who else you have in that wing rotation uh, in the starting lineup, at least in Tatum and Brown. But the minutes that, that are now going to go to guys like Grant Williams, you know, maybe a little more Brad Wanamaker, you know, Romeo Langford, Williams and Langford combined to play two minutes in this game. Semi Ojale, Javante Green, guys who've also stepped up when guys have been hurt this year, they were DNP CDs in this game. And, you know, at least one or two of those guys is now probably going to have to give you 10 to 15 minutes uh, in this game. And, and, 
you know, Philly can go heavy with that starting lineup. You know, Embiid, Richardson, Harris, Horford, all those guys play big minutes. You're going to be asking maybe a rookie in Romeo Lankford to chase around Tobias Harris. Yeah, I mean, Hay- Hayward's minutes are valuable for just like the replacement level or the replacement guys or the replacement minutes that need to be there. So, yeah, I think I think I'm going to stick with with Philly plus five in this one. I think I think that's a that's that's an upset that I would take. All right, final line for tomorrow. The Clippers are now six and a half point favorites. These odds are via the DraftKings Sportsbook, by the way, we should note. Uh, Clippers are six and a half point favorites over Dallas in game two. I mean, they they only lost by eight with Porzingis getting ejected early. Right. And so I don't six and a half is not bad. This is another one I would I would definitely consider taking the Mavericks here. Um, you can get them at plus two twenty five to win. Uh, yeah, I think, I think with Porzingis back, there's, again, I don't know. I mean, I think a lot of people will be on, um, Mavericks plus six and a half. And like we mentioned earlier, the Clippers, Montrez Harrell played bad. Uh, and Reggie Jackson was again, unplayable. So assuming those guys play like average, uh, even with Porzingis back, there's still a chance they, you know, they just end up winning by a lot. It's it's a tough one, but this would be another one where I'm like kind of tempted to to take Dallas and and hope that they can pull off they can make the adjustments and pull off the the game two upset. I, I like the Clippers side in this one uh, for the reasons I laid out just a little bit earlier. I, I think I think this is pr- maybe a little bit of a letdown game from Dallas. I think they played one of their better games even with Porzingis getting kicked out early uh, in game one, and I, I think they do steal one at some point. I, I think it's maybe after a reset um, in game three or game four. Uh, that they're able to do that. But I, I like the Clippers in this one. Um, real quickly, Alex, we have about 40 more seconds left in the show. Have you uh, have you changed your mind at all on your finals pick, which I, I believe you were a Clippers-Bucks guy, right? Yeah, Clippers-Bucks. Um, that's that's my pick for now. I'm not, I'm not going to pivot off of it because of one game against the Magic. But if I had to change it, I would be picking Clippers-Raptors. Mm-hmm. I, I think that's probably the most popular pivot. I, I'm sticking right. with Clippers Bucks as well and Clippers winning it. But ask me again in, in two days and I might have to revisit that. Right. All right. That was the Rotowire NBA show on NBA uh, Dash Radio's NBA channel. Rotowire.com slash dash is where you can go for that 10 day free trial. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week. 